Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for supporters of the Islamic History Podcast. And in this series, we are covering the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and this is also known as the Sira. And this is episode or Sira episode number thirty-eight. This will probably be a fairly short episode. I don't quite know yet. But I'm trying to break things up a little bit. I have quite a few projects going on right now. And so I just um, am not able to devote the time that I would like to to everything. So trying to keep balanced here. Anyway, just a quick recap of the last episode. We discussed that uh, several delegations from around Arabia had come to Medina to join the Muslims. This year is often known as the Year of Delegations. There were over 70 delegations from both Muslim and non-Muslim tribes. Most of the tribes who came and pledged allegiance or gave bayah to Prophet Muhammad if they were not already Muslim, most of them converted. However, there were some that came and gave bayah and joined the Muslim side in a way but they did not convert. They just agreed to uh, pay the jizya or the tax to the Muslim government, or uh, in other words, the Prophet ﷺ, pay the tax and live in peace with the Muslims, and nobody was forced to convert. We also discussed how one of the most significant conversions was the tribe of Thaqif. The, the uh, Thaqif, they were the main tribe in the city of Ta'if, and they had opposed the Prophet for several years. They had even killed one of their own leaders who had accepted Islam. And they saw, however, after they killed this guy, that who one of their own leaders who had accepted Islam, once they had killed him, they realized that the Muslim strength was just growing and there was very little chance they could continue to oppose the Muslims and they saw very little benefit in continuing this opposition. So eventually they sent a delegation to make peace with Prophet Muhammad and after lots of back and forth, they did eventually accept Islam. And so now we are going to discuss the Battle of Tabuk. It first begins when rumors began to spread that the Byzantines, whom were also, who were really the Eastern Roman Empire, but we now know them as the Byzantines, the Byzantines were preparing to invade the Muslim lands. This would have most likely been the northern Arabian tribes that had pledged allegiance to Prophet Muhammad This region, which was in between the Muslim territory and the Roman territory, there was uh, quite a few tribes who were either Christian or Christians who had just become Muslim, but nonetheless, there was uh, this was a point of conflict. Rumors began began uh, circulating throughout Medina that the Byzantine that the Byzantines were amassing a huge army near the Muslim border with Syria. And when I say Syria, I mean this northern Arabian region, not necessarily the modern Republic of Syria. But uh, as it will, we'll eventually see as the battle plays out, such as there was, many of the, these rumors were overblown or exaggerated. 
the Byzantines were certainly alarmed at the rapid growth of the of this Muslim land, or I will say Muslim dominion. I'm hesitant to call it an empire just yet, because most of the people who were part of this land were all pretty much Arabs. So an empire, I'm getting a little deep here, I don't want to go down this road, but an empire usually includes several different groups of people forged under one government. So um, it's kind of hard to really call um, what the caliphate, what's the caliphate, my bad, what the, uh, what the Muslims had right now, it's hard to call it an empire. It was ruled by the Prophet, of course, but it's really hard to call it an empire. Most of the people in there were all one ethnicity, pretty much all spoke the same language. They had been previously broken up. He, he kind of just really united most of the um, Arabian or Arabic Arab tribes on the Arabian Peninsula. Now, of course, eventually it does become an empire as the Muslims go ahead and forth um, into Syria and Iran and then into North Africa. But what we now know of as Iran and Iraq and uh, was known back then as Persia. As the Muslims begin to spread, spread further and beyond and well beyond the Arabian Peninsula, yes, it definitely takes on all the characteristics of an empire. But at this time, I'm reluctant to call it an empire, and I don't want to call it a kingdom either, because the kingdom is kind of uh, hereditary, and I'm almost certain the Prophet had no intentions of this being a hereditary um, a, her a hereditary nation, I don't know how else to call it, a hereditary nation that's passed from father to son to father to son. So I, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't call it a kingdom or a monarchy or anything, but it, I, I, best I can call it really is a dominion. So we'll leave it at that. Anyway, the Byzantines were alarmed at the rapid growth of the of the dominion, however, of the Muslim dominion that is. However, they were not really interested because they didn't see this part of Arabia as having much value. It was mostly desert. There wasn't anything down there, weren't any really large cities. They saw it as just a bunch of isolated uh, former Bedouin Arab tribes who really has somehow managed to be forged into one large nation. And so while the Byzantines may have been surprised or a little bit concerned about it, it is unlikely they were preparing a full-scale invasion of Arabia. Nonetheless, the rumors were circulating, and so the Prophet, he took them seriously, and he ordered the Muslims to prepare for battle. And this would actually wind up being the last battle that the Prophet himself personally participated in. Now, when the Prophet normally prepared his battle plans, he usually kept his plan secret because Medina was rife with hypocrites and he wanted to keep information from leaking out from uh, the Muslims into, into the enemies. And so he kept a lot of that secret. But with this being such a, a large-scale fight, this being such an enormous undertaking by the Muslims, it was pointless to try to keep things secret. And so the Prophet immediately let it, let it be known what his plans were. And he informed as many people as he could and everyone, he put the word out basically that all of the Muslims will have to participate in this and he let them know what he hoped to do. 
they would have to actually travel about 300 miles, which is roughly 480 kilometers from Medina to northern Arabia. And he also let the people know that they will be fighting the Byzantines. And the Byzantines at this time were considered the superpower. And so this was a little bit, uh, a little bit concerning to a lot of the Muslims. They, um, no doubt, many of them still had the defeat at the Battle of Malta, which were Byzantine-aligned or allied Arab tribes. The Muslims lost that battle, the Battle of Malta, which we mentioned, uh, I think, in episode number 33, that Khalid ibn Walid led. I'm pretty sure that for many of them, this defeat was fresh in their minds. And so, almost certainly, they had a healthy respect for the military prowess of the Byzantine Empire. And so, without a doubt, many of the uh, Muslims were concerned and maybe even had a little bit of fear in them regarding facing the Byzantines. The Battle of Tabuk took place in Rajab, 9-A-H. Rajab is the seventh month of the Islamic calendar. And we're going a little bit out of sequence here because the Battle of Tabuk actually took place before the Thaqif, whom we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, which was a recap of the last episode. The uh, Battle of Tabuk actually took place before the Thaqif accepted Islam. The Thaqif accepted Islam in Ramadan, 9-A-H, and the Battle of Tabuk took place in Rajab, 9-A-H. The weather was also very hot during this time of, time of year. It may have been somewhere around September or October or so, and it was very uh, hot even for Arabians, Arabia standards. And Arabia was also going through another drought. And this is also the time that the crop was about to be, the, the, Muslim, the, the Muslim crops, the crops of the, of the region were about to be harvested. And so for a lot of reasons, people didn't really want, didn't really want to go. And for all these difficult reasons, the Battle of Tabuk is often called Ghazwatun Usra, or the Battle of Hardship, because there were lots of hardships experienced by the Muslims in preparing for this battle. It was very, they were going to face a very powerful enemy. They were going to travel a very long distance. And they were going to, uh, going in during a very hot and difficult time of the year. Nonetheless, the Prophet put out the order and all the Muslims had to contribute to the war effort. And uh, this was obviously going to be a very difficult and expensive undertaking. The Prophet uh, asked for the wealthier Muslims to help out, and they responded quickly. Abdurrahman ibn Auf, one of the closest companions to the Prophet, وسلم, he contributed 200 ounces of silver. Don't ask me how I did my calculations, that's what I got to. Abbas, who was the Prophet's uncle, he provided 200,000 dirhams. Uthman ibn Affan, he provided 300 camels loaded with provisions. This is actually a caravan that Uthman was preparing to um, send into Syria to make some money. That was, This was the business of most of the um, Muslims who, most of the Muhajirun who converted um, er, in the early days of the Prophet's mission. Most of them were merchants and Uthman was one of them. But rather than send this caravan of 300, cav- uh, 300 camels to Syria, he instead donated everything to the Muslim war effort. Omar ibn al-Khattab, he gave half, his, half of his wealth 
And then in a famous story, of course, Abu Bakr, he surpassed Omar and gave all of his wealth. And there are lots of stories regarding um, Omar's, I won't say disappointment, but his frustration at not being able to outdo Abu Bakr in terms of charity. All able-bodied men were expected to participate in the battle. And once again, the prophet, he was expecting to face off against the Byzantines. And it's kind of hard to say if the Byzantines were really the most powerful military in the world at the time, though they probably were, considering that most of the people in this region that we're discussing did not know about any other, many of the parts of the world, didn't know anything about the other half of the globe, North and South America as we know them now, but still, if they weren't the most powerful military in the world, they were certainly the most powerful military in the region. And when the prophet put out the, the word for the Muslims to get ready and prepare for this long journey and this difficult battle, several hypocrites found reasons not to go. And as they made up their reasons, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down verses to counteract them. Much of these, much of this uh, the events of this battle are related in Surah Tawbah, the ninth chapter of the Quran. It's not necessarily in the chronological order that we're mentioning it, but still, the um, that surah really addresses a lot of things within this battle. So there was one man who turned out to be a hypocrite. His name was Jad ibn Qais. He was from the Khazraj clan of Medina. The prophet asked him if he if he was ready, if he was ready and willing to go fight Banu Asfar or the red people. And quickly, very, very quickly, Asfar, it means red in Arabic, and Banu Asfar means children of the red or red people, basically. When um, the Arabs, they called, this is what they called Europeans, what we call, forgive me for saying this, for lack of a better phrase, what they call, what we call white people, they called red so this is just a different perception of how different people across different uh, eras and different times classify skin color. Anyway, he said, are you ready to go fight the red people? Jad ibn Qais, he said that he wanted to go, but he really, really couldn't because he would be tempted by the Greek women of the Byzantines. The Byzantine was mostly a Greek culture and uh, Jad ibn Qais, he said the women were just too beautiful, these Greek women, they would, he'd be tempted by them, he would fall into sin. And so he used that as an excuse not to uh, participate in the battle. Allah, of course, revealed a verse, um, I won't say mocking that, but denouncing that statement is chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 49. I'll just do the English, um, what translates as, and among them is he who says, allow me to stay and do not put me to trial. This trial is, of course, I'm putting in my own emphasis here. This trial is the trial of committing sin. That was, that was Jad ibn Qais's um, excuse, of course. And Allah continues on with the verse as what tra- into what translates as, Have they not already fallen into trial? And certainly hell will encompass the disbelievers. So this was in response to Jad ibn Qais's statement. Continuing on, there are other hypocrites who use the severe heat as an excuse not to go. And Allah discusses that also in chapter 9, verse 81, when he says, Those who remained behind rejoiced in their staying at home after the departure of the Messenger of Allah and disliked to strive with their wealth and their lives in the cause of Allah and said, Do not go forth in the heat. Say, 
The fire of hell is more intensive in heat if they would but understand. Obviously, in this verse, Allah is denouncing those statements as well. Other hypocrites said that they just couldn't leave their wives and their family behind. And then there were others who said that the Muslims just weren't ready to take on the Byzantines and they needed more time to prepare and they refused to participate in the battle along these lines. And it's going to take a very quick aside here. I'll come back to the main timeline of the story. This reveals the overall structure of the Muslim military at the time. The Prophet ﷺ did not have a standing army. He depended on the willing participation of the Muslim community in his battles. And so this is not really uh, something that I can take up right now. And this is something for scholars and every and other people to really look into. But um, as we know, if you listen to chapter, I'm sorry, season two of the Islamic History podcast, if you remember at some point, Omar ibn Khattab, when he became the caliph, he had to establish a standing army. During the Prophet's time and during um, Abu Bakr's caliphate, the Muslims were able to keep this loose organization of willing participants, of just putting out a call and Muslims just um, going ahead and organizing for battle on more of a tribal basis. But by the time Omar ibn Khattab became the caliph and later on, especially as they began to face stiff resistance from the Persians and the, and the Romans or the Byzantines, the Muslims had to establish more of a of an organized military. And once again, this is for the faqih or the fuqaha among us or the scholars to really try to determine in a case like this, how do we handle the Islamic concept of division of the spoils of war? Um, I, I really don't know how, I can't think off the top of my head how it was done during Omar's time. I'm pretty sure, and I'm certain, a lot of Muslims grew very wealthy during these um, these campaigns, which they conquered most of Syria and all of the Persian Empire at the time. I know a lot of Muslim soldiers and, and uh, captains and, and lieutenants and officers got very, very wealthy uh, during this period of time. However, um, Modern military can't really exist on the same basis that the Prophet's military existed on. And so some, it's an interesting, it will be an inter interesting discussion to see how that would break down in, uh, in, in modern day. How that, or if it's something that is something that's relegated to the past, Allah knows best. But I'll leave that to the smarter people to figure those things out. Continuing on with the main story. There were also some good Muslims who did not go, they did not participate because of procrastination. It's not that they didn't want to assist the prophet. They believed they were not hypocrites. It's just that for various reasons, they just did not leave with him. We'll, we'll delve more into their story, most likely in the next episode. But these four Sahaba, these four companions who did not uh, leave with the Muslims, were Ka'ab ibn Malik, Murada ibn, ibn Rabi, and uh, Halal ibn Umayyah, and Abu Khaythama. Um, except for the last one, the other, the first three all stayed behind. Abu Khaythama, we'll discuss him later on, he eventually has a change of heart and he rushes out to meet the Muslims, but that will pro probably be in the next episode. There were also some good Muslims who wanted to participate, but they could not participate because 
They didn't have the means to go. This was a 300-mile march. And if you didn't have a camel, you were pretty much out of luck. And there are some Muslims who just didn't have a camel. All of them weren't wealthy and rich like Abu Bakr and Omar and Uthman and the others. Some of them were fairly poor. Several of these companions, they became known as the weepers. They wanted to join the prophet and they went to him and asked him if he could provide them with a camel. But the prophet did not have the extra camels to provide to them. And so when they heard this, they started to cry out of, um, they were upset basically out of sorrow because they couldn't join and join in the fight. Now, some of these companions who were crying, some of these people who were termed the weepers, other companions saw them crying. When they heard that they were crying, they donated camels to them. But it seems as if the vast majority of these poor Muslims who couldn't participate in the battle wound up staying behind in Medina. But Allah discusses them and he pardons them for their inability to participate, not because of lack of faith or lack of desire, simply because lack of means. And so Allah mentions, this is in, once again, chapter 9, verse 92, what translates as, Nor is there blame upon those who, when they came to you, that you might give them mounts. You said, I can find nothing for you to ride upon. They turned back while their eyes overflowed with tears out of grief that they could not find something to spend for the cause of Allah. And so, Allah essentially pardoned those Muslims who were not able to participate because of financial reasons. Ultimately, the Prophet ﷺ, he departed Medina with 30,000 soldiers. So as the Prophet was preparing to leave Medina, he received a request from the Muslims who built the Masjid of Descent. Let's discuss the Masjid of Descent. Masjid ad-Dirar. Masjid ad-Dirar. Let me get my phrasing correct. Before we could talk about Masjid ad-Dirar, let's talk about Masjid al-Quba. Masjid al-Quba, which is about two miles south of the Prophet's Mosque in Medina, this was actually the first mosque built in Medina. If you go back, I can't remember the number of episodes, but if you go back to when the Prophet first made his hijrah, before he had an established residence in Medina, he stayed with some family in um, what became uh, what became the Masjid al-Quba. And he set the, the stone. He stayed with some family in the region that where Masjid al-Quba would be built. And the Prophet laid the foundation for this first masjid when he first arrived in Medina. And it is, of course, now known as Masjid al-Quba, still stands in Medina today. Of course, it's been remodeled and rebuilt and expanded several times over, over the centuries. But it, it is still there. If um, I saw it when I made Hajj and when we visited Medina, I saw it. If you visit Medina, you will see it also. You can't miss it. Very unique building. But this region where Masjid al-Quba was built was mostly uh, inhabited by uh, uh, Banu Amr ibn Auf, which who were loyal to the Prophet sallallahu and the Prophet he loved uh, Banu Amr ibn Auf, and he still had an emotional attachment or connection to this masjid, and he would frequent this masjid often. He would visit it roughly once a week, according to some some uh, Sahaba. Anyway, Banu Ghanam, another local clan in Medina. 
they were mostly hypocrites, and they were also rivals of Banu Abin, Amr ibn Auf. And almost certainly, um, Amr ibn Auf's uh, closeness with the Prophet and his love for, for their people almost certainly increased that rivalry between the Ghanam and, ban, and uh, Banu Amr ibn Auf. Anyway, so since Banu Amr ibn Auf had taken Masjid al-Quba after the Prophet left Masjid al-Quba and settled into what became the Prophet's Masjid in Medina, Masjid al-Nabi, after uh, they pretty much took Masjid al-Quba as their own personal masjid in a way, or their own local masjid, which again is about two miles away from Medina, so it's not in the time of um, horses and camels, they couldn't really walk back and forth there five times a day. And so they had a local masjid to go pray at. Anyway, so they had taken Masjid al-Quba, so Banu Ghanam, this rival tribe who were mostly hypocrites, they built another mosque just for themselves. Now, Banu Ghanam, their saying was that they were just trying to build a mosque, they were just trying to build a place to worship Allah, but they did some very sketchy things <laughs> along with that. First of all, it was built in rivalry to another group of Muslims. It wasn't built to um, for the worship of Allah, it was built um, to... I don't want to say antagonized, but built to separate themselves from their Muslim brothers, even though I understand that there was rivalry rivalry between them. But in addition to that, Banu Ghanam invited a man named Abu Amir al-Rahib to pray in it. Abu Amir, he was from Medina, but he had converted to Christianity. He had never accepted Islam. There were also there also there is also evidence that he had close ties to people in the Byzantine government, whom right now the Muslims are considering their enemies, and essentially they did become enemies. And on top of that, Abu Amir had also previously worked as a spy for both the Byzantine government and the Quraysh before the Quraysh accepted Islam. So Abu Amir was passing information from Medina to the Byzantines and to the Quraysh. Why the Banu Ghanam invited this guy who wasn't even Muslim? He was probably a Christian. Why they invited him and also not just not Muslim, he was also an enemy of the Muslims. He was a spy at uh, several times and had close ties to the Muslim, to uh, an enemy of the Muslims. Why they invited him to pray in it is beyond me. Any case, after they invited Abu Amir to pray in it, they also invited Prophet Muhammad to pray within Masjid al-Dirar. And this was, of course, to legitimize it. But the Prophet declined as he was busy with the preparations for the Battle of Tabuk, but he did say that he would come back. When he came back after the battle, um, after the expedition, he would then go ahead and pray in the masjid. So we will discuss the outcome of, of that, inshallah, in the next episode. But just setting the seeds right now. Any case, so the Prophet وسلم, he led he leads the army out of Medina, and they first stop at uh, a place called Thaniyatul Wada, which was a mountain pass just north of Medina. The uh, leader of the hypocrites, Abdullah ibn Obey ibn Salul, he had also departed Medina with the Prophet and his army. Uh, but Abdullah ibn Obey ibn Salul, he set up a separate camp just south from where the Prophet stopped at and camped at. And when the Prophet eventually broke camp and continued on with the journey, Abdullah ibn Obey and most of his followers, they did not continue for various reasons. 
They decided this battle wasn't worth it, and they turned back and returned to Medina. Another person not included in the Prophet's military at this, on this juncture was Ali ibn Abi Talib. He had been left behind to watch over the Prophet's property and his family. But according to the Muslim sources, rumors began to circulate. Well, the hypocrites began to circulate rumors that the Prophet had left Ali behind because he felt Ali was a burden. This was the hypocrites almost certainly trying to cause a divide within the Prophet's family. And when Ali heard these rumors, he grabbed up his weapons and he rushed out to catch up with the Prophet. The Prophet hadn't really gone all that far. He finally caught up with the Prophet at a place called Al-Jurf, Al -Jurf, which was about six kilometers or three miles north of Medina. And Ali explained the rumors and he wanted to prove to the Prophet وسلم, that he would not be a burden. But the Prophet told him that these are all lies. These rumors that he, that he had heard, these are all lies. And he informed Ali that he had left Ali behind to watch over his family because Ali was part of his family. And so he told Ali to return home and acknowledge that the Prophet had no sort of disapproval and no reason to think of him as a burden. He also told Ali that Ali was to him like Aaron, Prophet Harun, was to Moses, Prophet Musa, alayhi wasalam. And last but not least, uh, the Prophet wasalam, also left uh, a companion named Muhammad ibn Maslama al-Ansari as a deputy over Medina while the Prophet was going. And so that's going to conclude it for this episode. Inshallah, we will continue the events of the Battle of Tabuk in the next episode. So until then, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.